Have you ever written a letter to your future self before? Usually, these kinds of letters are for aspirations. Maybe something like dropping weight or finishing a project, starting a new habit, or maybe getting married, having children. I haven't written many of these types of letters before in my life. But in going through some old boxes, my mom found one, written by me around the time I was in middle school. I still have it, though it's tucked away in some old junk mail. Okay, where are you? The thing about this letter is that instead of being addressed to me, it was addressed to Satan. Okay. Dear Satan, this is Alec. You've tried so hard to get me to fall, but in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, I exile you from my life. Yes, you know the things that make me stumble and fall, but I have the power of God on my side. And he has already defeated you. So why do I need to fight? I've been holding on to it, debating on throwing it away. But it's also a time capsule. Here's a kid, adamant that he's going to beat the devil. He's struggling to stay pure and holy, but he can't do it all of the time. You hate that I might be happy and that I might be successful, that I might go to heaven and not to hell. You hate that God loves me too because you chose not to love him. You're jealous, and that's why you try so hard to make me stumble and fall. But I will not worship you. You cannot win this, Satan. You have already lost. It was written in the scriptures, and I'm writing it here, too. Signed, Alec. So, why was I writing this letter? It was partly out of determination, confidence that I could lead a holy life as God wanted, but it was also out of a lingering shame. Shame that I hadn't achieved one of the coveted experiences of my faith. You see, I grew up Pentecostal, a minority denomination of Christianity that's considered fiercely evangelical. Fiercely because it believes in something called the gifts of the Spirit. And more specifically, the gift of speaking in tongues. Now, I hadn't thought through these years of my life and my religion for a long time. I left when I was about 17 years old, after a series of disagreements with my church and my mother, who still goes to church today. This letter has drummed up a number of questions for me, which I realized have always existed, but I've never really had the words and time to formulate them. How did growing up in an insulated, evangelical community shape me? Who am I today in relationship to that younger me? Are there others like me who immersed themselves entirely within their church as kids, but ended up leaving later? And as I began talking with others in search of answers, a new question emerged. Did I grow up in a cult? And now the Holy Spirit would begin to define those things for you and make it clear. Paul says, he who prays in tongues doesn't speak to men, but speaks to God. Things are going to open up. God's Spirit's going to begin to move again in America. I believe that with all my heart. Somebody give God praise. So can you introduce yourself and just um, share a bit of your Pentecostal background? My name's Andrew, and I am fifth generation Pentecostal. I should use past tense. My great-great-grandfather was one to God, the story goes, when he was in his 20s or 30s, I believe, and it's been passed down on my dad's side for five generations, and I have nieces and nephews that are now making the sixth generation. I was gung-ho into church three times a week, at least more than that some weeks, and I'm the only one of my family who's no longer with the church. My real name is Isaac. My church that I attended was kind of interesting because they're sort of an offshoot of an offshoot. And that was what I was immersed in for 30 years. Um, went to their private school, 
I was as far committed to that as I think any other member would be considered. You know, it was it was my life. How would you describe Pentecostalism to to someone who isn't religious? Pentecostalism, we accept Jesus as a, uh, a dual nature. He was both divine and human. He had a physical body that was a, a real human body. And so he suffered and died, and he went through that pain and suffering so that we could have healing and deliverance today in the modern time. If you call on the name of the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. Where a Pentecostal person differentiates, they don't accept that argument of just pray and, and ask for salvation. You have to follow this uh, formula that's laid out in, in the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 38, which is simply, uh, then Peter said unto them, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And it was sort of a new revelation that differed from the rest of the Protestant movement in its emotional vigor and specifically the, the works of the Spirit and the um, flamboyant, flamboyant worship, running the aisles, rolling on the, on the floor, lifting of the hands and, and singing very vibrantly, you know, and they tend to prioritize worship and outspokenness in church and, you know, affirming the pastor and saying amen and things like that. The word I use is fundamentalist. Very strictly and very literally interprets the Bible. And this is always the part that I have the hardest time explaining to people when they ask me, uh, what is Pentecostalism? Um, because speaking in tongues is really central to kind of what makes Pentecostalism unique. So can you just explain what that is, what speaking in tongues is? Some Pentecostals think that it's absolutely essential to speak in other tongues in order to be saved. You have to speak a foreign language or a, a tongue of an angel, something that's completely unintelligible to you. If you don't do this, then you don't have the sign of the Holy Spirit in filling your life. And if you don't do this, then you're not saved. You know, you're going you're gonna to burn. Paul, one of the apostles, in his letter to the Corinthian church, the first, first Corinthians chapter 12, he lists the gifts of the Spirit. And they are the word of knowledge, word of wisdom, gift of prophecy, the gift of faith, the gift of healing, the working of miracles, the discerning of spirits, what's called diverse tongues or various tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. Pentecostals believe that all of them are still relevant today and still available to the church today. And not everybody has them. I have been told by people who have claimed to have seen miracles such as blind eyes opened and deaf ears unstopped, according to them, even the dead coming back to life. I spoke to people who, who were there when a man supposedly died and was God raised him back to death. And what did, what, what did you think yeah. of that when, when you were first hearing that? When I first heard of it, I was 12, had no connection with the outside world, literally no connection with the outside world. Didn't watch TV, didn't you know read any books that weren't approved by my parents and had no friends outside of the world. So I, I had no... I had no reason to think that that was crazy. Lazarus was risen from the dead, raised from the dead. Why wouldn't, you know, Brother Parrot? And this is what's wild to me because at least in my church, we never had legends of people like being raised from the dead, but we did have a kind of, I guess, folklore um, or kind of mythology around demon exorcisms, like an example being... Uh, a story of one woman who slithered beneath the pews like a snake uh, as a demon was was exorcised and pushed out of her. Um, but, you know, I, I tried so hard to speak in tongues and I was never able to. So can you just explain what that was like? Yes. The first time I was, I think, seven or eight. Lots of crying and, you know, laid out on the floor by the the front of the church and people all around me and lots of tears and just exhaustion of, of trying to, you know, that, that sort of, that sort of feeling in the pit of your stomach when you, you've cried so hard 
and just exerted so much emotion that your 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 body is convulsing and 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 contracting your your abdomen muscles are contracting and when everybody's praying and somebody just stands up or or you know leans over from praying and just starts hollering in tongues you know so that everybody can hear and everybody just goes silent all the music stops and it's it's sort of a a hushed tone you know it's like the what they would call the Shekinah glory of God has fallen upon the service. Your eyes hurt from, from closing them so hard because you don't dare open them or you'll, you'll break the trance, you know? And that's literally what it is. Some people will just chatter and they'll just, you know, and they don't make any actual words. They're just making this really excited chattering and stuttering with their tongue and lips. What was that moment like? It was a sense of relief, like I've never felt before, and I can clearly remember it. It was goosebumps, and literal goosebumps, hair standing up, and and just peace. I say that because that's what they told you is, you know, oh yeah, this is the peace that passeth all understanding. This is God's peace He's giving you. It's just I I, I felt calm because i knew it was over and i had gotten god's attention i had gotten god's approval and that meant everything to me i felt like i was like somebody was actually listening on the other end but you know whether or not that's true i was asking i sure was asking and every time that i spoke in tongues i felt answered i felt heard i felt validated i felt like my my faith had been validated and I spoke this language. And so God must exist. God must be here with me right here in, in, in a spirit form. And he's approved me. He's, he's, he likes me. He wants me to be, he wants me to go to heaven. And he's, you know, he's given me what I asked for. So you can each day balabasito in each dorotalabakasi and otorizi is dodge domain. Kurababa Bashanda Kianda la Bariesta, Mom Briasti Cariesta Brianda. Yes, the mind says it's weird, but the spirit says, Hello, this is awesome. And so, right now, just let it flow from your spirit. Kianda Badura Mandiesta. Don't worry about the words, just from your spirit, just let it flow. Kiara Bashonda Riquiese, Mariesta la Barlusha Brianda. Cool. So if you just want to introduce yourself, um, I mean, f- feel free to, to go by a name that you'd prefer. I'm going to go by AV. I grew up a third generation, a UPCI member. I left the church about 13 years ago when I was 19 and have just been slowly working through what that means for myself ever since. We would have wild services where people were running the aisles, jumping on chairs, rolling on the floor, you know, dancing at the front, all of that different stuff. We would also have services where there was just this sort of deep grief almost that would go through the congregation. And so very emotional. I, quote unquote, received the Holy Ghost when I was 10. I was sitting and I was writing a letter to my favorite uncle because my parents had been talking and like his drug problem was getting worse and I was worried about him. And I just started crying. And my mom asked me what was wrong. And I told her that I was worried about my uncle and she was like, well, now is the perfect time to go pray for him. And so this emotional 10 year old gets pulled up to the altar and, you know, I was surrounded by adult, like I'm, I'm already sobbing because I'm upset and, you know, that's interpreted by the adults around me that the spirit is coming over me. And so all of these adults surround me and there's a lot of shouting and, you know, everybody's touching me. And I like I was just overwhelmed with the situation and the emotion. And after that, it's blank. I don't remember anything. I, I like came to about an hour later and didn't know what was going on. And my mom told me that I'd been speaking in tongues for over an hour. And I, I didn't remember it. I had no memory of it. But it was kind of a traumatic experience. And um, from that point forward, you know, I, I was told, like, I've received the gift of the Spirit. Now I can speak in tongues. And so that's what I was supposed to do when I prayed going forward. I mean, it was probably six or seven years after the first time that I spoke in tongues again, 
the second time. And then, you know, years in between that, but it was always, I had done something wrong and I knew the Holy ghost was no longer <laughs> inside me or in my spirit. I wasn't approved, but I didn't think I have God's stamp of approval and I wanted it. So it was that same scenario over and over again, wanting to be approved by God. And it just seeking for that. I felt that I was asking a, a, a deity for that. One of the teachers that I kind of, that kind of took me under her wing, like I, I was in a very like fragile emotional state and she noticed that, that I was dealing with a lot of, a lot of things. So she kind of became, you know, a confidant and a mentor. And when she found out that I was Pentecostal, she asked about speaking in tongues and I was like, Oh yeah, that's part of it. And she's like, you know, I've tried for my entire life and I just can't do it. I wish God would give me that ability but like for her, the justification was that she talked too much to begin with. So she didn't think God was going to give her that gift, which I thought was hilarious. And also like brought to brought to reality, the fact that not everybody who follows God can do this. So I never personally spoke tongues in the sense of I was possessed by the spirit. My name is Sarah. I have spent most of my life from birth to adulthood in church. I used to be so religious, it's not even funny. I was never to the point of wearing skirts and covering your ankles, but I wanted to speak in tongues so bad. But I followed my father's belief of that the spirit has to possess you. So it was a matter of, for me, you know, I'm doing my very best for God. I'm donating my gifts of the spirit. I am doing all these things. I am so into my church and my people and I do everything that God says and I listen to the sermons and take notes as best as possible but I have yet to be possessed by the spirit and speak the language of God it was almost as if my I wouldn't want to say obsession but it was like an obsession of compulsion I remember praying as I would go to bed every night that the Holy Spirit possess me and make itself known so I can see the things and the ways of God, which was, was partially taught to me by my grandparent that the Holy Spirit can come over you and it has happened to them. So for me, it's like, I've, I've been so deep in this and it hasn't happened. Why not? So for me, like I was never able to speak in tongues. I really desperately wanted to, and I tried super hard to for, for years and when I didn't, it's it's like you're saying, it was an obsession. But uh, that obsession eventually turned, I think, into a kind of shame or a guilt that um, I wasn't doing something right. I wasn't doing what God wanted. And I really loved the church. So that shame just kind of motivated me to be that much better at my scriptures or not sinning or just memorization. Um, I guess, did you have that same kind of empty fulfillment or like you're chasing something all the time my mental health at the time had really degraded due to some personal trauma i had encountered when i was younger so between that trying to search for some reconciliation some hope that i will stop feeling this way that i did mentally and then also being constantly told by the individuals that believed in the Pentecostal doctrine, you know, there was probably a good reason why. And it had something to do with me if I hadn't felt the Holy Spirit. And perhaps it could have been my negative mindset. It could have been my depressive tendencies. It could be the grudges that I hold against people. It was always an element of there was something that I was doing, which was why I wasn't ever experiencing the presence of God. When I felt like trying to live better was difficult because there were so many uh, microscopic moments throughout each day where you could slip up, you know, quote unquote, uh, fall out of God's grace. I'm curious as to what kind of restrictions you had within your church and if you had that same kind of feeling. Well, I usually try to mention, you know, it, it, was, it was like being Amish. So much of what defines Pentecostals, especially just to the average person that may not have that much religious background, is really how they live and it's you're not allowed to watch movies you're not allowed to go dancing you're not allowed to go to the bar and so you live by this code and even more so than just like 
the code is the fear of being turned in by your by your friends. They defined everything you did. You know, it's you couldn't you couldn't just go out with someone and just say, hey, uh, let's go out and grab a cup of coffee. Every decision you made went through the church leadership. It was a cult. I mean, that's really the best way to describe it. There was always some type of leash on the content that I had read or seen when I was younger or watched to the extent that, you know, when you're younger, you don't really notice those things because you only see what is given to you or shown to you. I really enjoy a good movie and I enjoy a good TV show, but that's like against the rules. Nobody has a TV in their house. Nobody even goes to the movies, but I would go by myself and again, mid twenties, early twenties, I'm just sitting in a movie theater, maybe a couple towns away, so I don't bump into anybody by chance, and nobody's going to recognize my car because I'm, you know, stuffed on the back lot of a movie theater somewhere, and and I would enjoy it, and then I would feel guilty about it just immediately after, and then like the next church service, oh, you know, I'm going to pray and ask forgiveness, and and next weekend I'm going to do it again, <laughs> and it was like they had this double life where you wanted to be normal, you wanted to experience normal things, but you couldn't, and you were just kind of locked into this controlling mindset where you were feeling guilty about things you enjoyed just because somebody thought it was a, it was a good idea, and, and you know, it was just the most ridiculous way to live. But that was reality. age that I was not straight. I didn't know what that meant. I thought it was just a temptation, a sin, a spirit, and I didn't know what to do with those thoughts. So I just prayed, literally prayed them away and pushed them out of my head and they kept coming. And so I, instead of acting on them or, or letting, you know, my finding my identity, as I would say now, I just pushed it away and, and even became homophobic and the man that I'm uh, in a relationship with right now, we had been friends for years before becoming an item. And early on in our friendship, I ran into him at Walmart and I, I stood there in the produce section and talked to him for a few minutes. And, and here comes walking through the door, a man who knows who, who went to church with me. And he knew that that other person, my, my current partner, he knew that that man was gay. And he looked at me and he looked at him and he nodded and he said, hello. And he kept walking and my heart just dropped because I knew that I was instantly labeled as gay because I was seen in public with a man who is a known homosexual. And that man who went to my church, I'll call him David, but David went to the pastor and told pastor, he said, hey, hey, pastor, I saw Andrew with a known homosexual in, in Walmart. They were talking. And my pastor called me aside and, and he said, is this true? And I said, yes, sir. I ran into him at, at Walmart and I was talking to him. And I said, well, just, you know, be careful about your, your reputation. You have a reputation. You have a reputation to, to protect. And I went back to David and I said, what gives? I mean, I, I just ran into him at Walmart and I was talking to him. What if I was witnessing to him? I, I wasn't, <laughs> obviously. And I, I asked him point blank. I said, so how long should I speak to somebody not in church if I run into them? If they're not in church and I run into them, how long should I speak to them before it becomes too long, before I'm associating with them? And he said 20 seconds. I think being a child is especially difficult when you're growing up in Pentecostalism because your parents at this point kind of have age, they have experience, they have things they can feel regret for, things they want to repent about, and they just have more life experience. They ha they've, they've seen the underside of the world. And so 
putting Christianity on top of that can make things seem really scary. There's demons flying around. Um, I'm curious, was there was there anything that your parents did that made it feel like life was, I don't know, much scarier um, for you as a kid? God, I remember, I don't know, like anointing oil. We would regularly make crosses over the doorposts and stuff in the windows. And, you know, you were taught to do that if you're having nightmares or you're having bad thoughts. And then you have that reinforcement of, you should constantly be in fear. So if you feel guilty watching something, oh, that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. You're not supposed to be watching that. Or the end times are coming. You should always be ready because Jesus could be coming back any minute. So then there's that paranoia that you're supposed to be on the lookout for the signs. And then after a while, you know, you're thinking the world's getting worse. So you start connecting all these dots that don't even exist. Living in constant fear of something. It there's in every doctrine, everything, there's just that reinforcement of fear that that's how you're supposed to live. And living in fear is what keeps you in line with God. It's the shame um, and guilt that comes with the concept of sin. I mean, I, I think thought crimes are, are, are just, it's an insane concept to, to say that, that someone is going to be punished eternally with with such a horrific concept of punishment you know burning in fire tortured for eternity because they had a thought you know when the the structures of authority can't police you you're policing yourself it seems like that fear of being turned in of being unfaithful to god or or being around even just unfaithful people it really i mean for me and, and what i'm hearing from other folks too is it, it just really makes you lonely I've called you to be a separate people, that whole thing. I don't know if your church mentioned that or not, but there's a scripture that, you know, God wants us to stand apart. This is part of the reason that I feel that Pentecostalism is a form of cult, because they tell you that you have to rely only on the people who are part of the church with you, that anyone outside of it is dangerous, and that you should expect to feel isolated by everyone around you who isn't in the church because that's how it's supposed to be. Everything is devoted in some way. You're thinking about it. You're planning something about it. You're reading something for it or about it. Or you're there. And you can't really escape one of this war unless you're sleeping. And even then, shoot, you might be dreaming about it. I mean, what effect did that kind of 24-7 surveillance, if you want to call it that, of, of yourself, what effect... Did that have on you? It turned into not long after it turned into paranoia. Then it spiraled into psychosis. And I remember there would be times where I would do my prayers to God at night and I would just get so frustrated because I wouldn't hear God say anything back to me. Well, I, I wouldn't hear God. I would hear a very sinister voice in my head and I at least had the smarts about me God that's not God why can't I stop this voice in my head and I think after a while it really started to drive me crazy that I was trying to revamp my my relationship even more like okay maybe if I fix it up a little you know get better you know read even more maybe I've been slacking that's kind of what's going on doing that it it didn't get better so Pentecostalism is obviously a very traditional religion. Uh, churches tend to be conservative, mine was, um, and to hold up a kind of image of, I guess, I don't know, good old-fashioned Christian living, puritanical living. What kind of um, expectations or restrictions or, I mean, even straight-up sexist views uh, did you experience when you were in church? Women weren't allowed to cut their hair no sleeves above the elbows, skirts had to fall below the knees, collars couldn't be more than the width of three fingers from the collarbone, no makeup. What I was told was that like all of this interest would make me a good wife in the future, that you know, all of this was good because I would be a good support perhaps to a pastor. It was never in the context of like you 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 can establish your own foothold in the faith and influence in your own right, it was always in the context of me being attached to the authority of a man. 
there was a level of sexism if a girl was, you know, talking to a boy in her fellow class. You know, there would always be watching him like a hawk, not so much watching him watching her. There would always be that that double standard of things that they were caught to. There was like this temptress a- aspect to it that that I was being overly sexual, and I like I. I don't know where they got that because I I was a kid. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no experiences like that. But it was still suggested, you know, that there was this dangerous aspect to me. I always wore dresses. I love to wear dresses. And we randomly got a complaint. I think during one of our girls' night or like girls' youth group that there were some of the boys standing down at the bottom of the stairs watching the girls go up so they could look under their skirts. And that pretty much they wanted us to wear shorter dresses or pants. So that really run me wrong because many years before I experienced sexual assault and I was wearing <laughs> uniform shorts for school when I experienced that. So for me, you know, someone that even at that point, which was kind of radical, I believed in, in women's rights and something that I never spoke about while I was going to church. I was at a youth convention and I was coming down from getting ready in my hotel room and I got on the elevator with uh, my youth minister and I was wearing a black turtleneck, a black, it was the early 2000s. So pleather was in at the time. (laughs) So I was wearing this black pleather skirt, but it was, it wasn't tight. It was just a black pleather pencil, like a straight skirt and then black boots, black knee high boots. So I was just all black pretty much all of my skin was covered and it wasn't tight clothing, but he looked me up and down and said that I looked like a $2 whore and I'm 14 years old. And I like just stunned and he just walked off the elevator to go to the service. And so I went upstairs and I changed. I was like, Holy shit. Like, you know, like that, I, I, I can't understand what about, you know, what about our belief system would ever make it okay to speak to a child like that, you know? And sorry, it makes me emotional to think about still. But um, so instances like that, though, were what were pushing me sort of away from the church is that I didn't feel valued for my own intellect, for what I could contribute on my own. And I was attacked a lot for for just trying to figure out ways to express myself that made me feel more comfortable in my own skin. Um, sorry, I need to take a second. But yeah, um, Pentecostal churches make space for abusers like this. How difficult was it for you to leave? Can you kind of walk me through what that process was like for you? If you walk out the door and you turn your back on us, immediately you're cut off, you're shunned. There's, okay, I I went to this church for every year of my life, literally from I was born till I was early 30s. And these people knew me from a, a newborn baby throughout my entire life, all 12 years of school, and virtually nobody even tried to send an email or a text or a phone call. You walk out the door, you vanish completely from their life. Like, you disappear. And I think I can count on one hand the number of people that I stayed in contact with, that I had some kind of relationship with after I left. I don't have a lot of contact with my family. I speak to my parents maybe every, every other week or so. But the fact that I'm not in church anymore is definitely a big part of that. I was married for six years. And as soon as I sat down and had an honest conversation with my wife, like, this is what I'm experiencing. I have doubts about things and I have good reasons to think that maybe this isn't the right way to go. And it's just like you threw a switch and it's I'm the outsider. I'm the I'm the enemy all of a sudden. And it was just downhill from that day on. I, I was sick of being the girl who wore skirts to school and told my, told my parents that I wanted to go shopping and I wanted jeans and I was tired of, you know, dressing that way. Ultimately, I'm going to do what I want. You, can, you guys can either accept it 
and like just let me do it or you can make it a fight and me go around behind your back so it's basically up to you you know they used to regularly talk about me actually kind of a disappointment that I left and that they can tell that I've changed as a person because I'm not as in touch with God as I used to be that that just changed me as a whole person and you know what I definitely agree I am a completely different person since I've left the church and it's for my own better you have to just leave I don't I don't speak to anybody that from my former life as I'll call it none of my friends some of them probably would speak to me but I choose not to I don't hate them I don't have any evil will towards them it just there's just there's a disconnect I mean what would we have to talk about when it came to my parents, they're just like, I, I grew up with these people. I know what they, their, their mentality and their thought patterns. There's no chance of that conversation going well. <laughs> you know, like I, I just thought, why would I even waste my time? I've been trying to really, I guess, distance myself from who I was then. Um, I've done what I guess I'd consider a 180 and I've kind of just um, put all those Pentecostal experiences in a box. I leave it somewhere. I've I've just decided that I'm not going to open it. Um, I guess at least not until now. Um, I mean, how do you reflect on your experience? Because I think what I'm grappling with is the fact that Pentecostalism and my experience is, I mean, it's part of who I am, whether I really want it to be or not. You hear in the church over and over again, all these people in the world, they're all they're all sad and they're lost and they're going to get addicted to drugs. They leave the church. They're, they're, they're going to lose everything and end up homeless. You know, that's, that's what the narrative they like to push. And, and yet it's the complete opposite. Everybody that I know that left the church, I mean, they're, they're happier. I got a job where I traveled more often I got to see New York city, flew around Atlanta and North Carolina, got to see San Francisco by myself I was just exploring life and feeling that freedom. And it was just like this incredible rush. I was, what, 16, 15 at the start. And it was a culture shock if you've ever, if everyone, if, if you ever didn't see one, it was like being splashed with cold water. I didn't have any friends outside of church. I had never heard secular music or, well, I mean, here and there, but not to speak of. I hadn't watched TV and I was just thrown into the deep end. It was a culture shock. It was pretty scary at first, but it was also exhilarating because like I was surrounded by so many different people and none of them followed the rules that I had been brought up to follow. Yeah, it it felt like a culture shock. It was like a pit in my stomach at the time, really, that, you know, I felt like in a way have have I wasted, you know, my time at this church after trying to do so, you know, trying to do good know as the way god would intend me to in the original sense of what jesus preached which is what we were supposed to be following but weren't that it ended up leading to nothing so what was what was what was the point of me devoting all my time and my effort and resources and i never genuinely saw any reward come out of it there would still be mornings where it would just feel wrong not waking up early on sunday or not going out on wednesday to go to youth group or not going somewhere on sunday night as a kid when you're being taught right from wrong, you're not just being taught don't kill and don't steal. You're being taught don't think these things and don't say these certain words. And there's no reason given except this book that's 2,000 years old. So you're constantly second guessing, is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay? And that's just, that causes things to break down over time. And, and, I lose cognitive function because some of it is so much of it is, is focused on second guessing myself. And it's not great for a relationship because I, I've spent so many years trying to make my parents happy, trying to make my pastor happy, trying to make my youth pastor happy and trying to make God happy. For years after leaving, you will dream about going to church, you know, because your brain is so wired to think about it. What do you think your life would have looked like if, if you hadn't gone to church? I see it as I lost a third of my life to those people. It's really hard to say if I went back to being, you know, if I left at 18 years old, you know, what, what would I have done differently? Would I have 
chosen a different career? Would I have chosen a different partner, certainly? You know, like, the possibilities just explode. I would have probably enjoyed life more. I mean, that's that's pretty much what it boils down to. I, I would have been like everybody else. Being like everybody else. For all those who I've spoken to, the message remains largely the same. Pentecostalism boxed them in. It kept them from the full experience of life. It fed their perfectionist tendencies and it brought long-lasting shame. But that isn't all. All of them, at some point, loved God fiercely. We took comfort in the belief that God created the universe and that we could enjoy everlasting happiness in heaven. We had wonderful friendships and mentors and people as close to us as family. If anything, for many of us, it was our endearing and fierce love of God that actually caused us to begin turning away from the church. We were too devoted, to the point of harming ourselves in the pursuit of God's supernatural gifts, gifts that were given to some and withheld from others. Throughout our conversations, I kept hearing the same thing, that we'd forgotten about many of the little moments of growing up Pentecostal. We'd forgotten a funny story about a prayer night, forgotten about pop Bible quizzes, forgotten about the holy herbs dusted through our home to ward off demons. The more I thought about it, looking at this letter that I'd written to the devil himself, I realized that I've chosen to not remember many of the specific heartaches of growing up. Like many of us, I believe myself to not just be completely different from my upbringing, but completely separate from it. So I had to hear more about who I was, and maybe this would help inform me about who I am now. Would it be possible to pop into the church? Oh, absolutely. I would love to see. I know my mom told me that even after I left, there was things are yes, different. Yes, absolutely. So I would love to see it. Let's pop in. Let's pop okay. in. Okay. This is Starla, one of the few people who still go to what was my church. Like, I've never seen I haven't like set that. foot in this building oh. for close to seven years. So you're going to see it's the same, but a little different. Small things change. Paint and furniture and people. But it's the here. same brick facade. The same white walls, the same carpet where we used to lay down and shake and speak in tongues, or try to at least. So how's it feel? How's it feel? It's a little surreal seeing all the different Uh stuff. And it's different in here, just a little, but not much. Do you remember cleaning in here? Oh, do I remember cleaning in here? (laughs) Don't remind me. I know. Most of my growing up happened here. Wow. They changed the name too, right? Yes, it's now called Arise Fellowship. It's all still the same. Some things never change. They never change. And this we don't use a lot. We just don't have any kids. I'm trying to think of how many hours I've spent in this building. I know. (laughs) Lots. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yep. I mean, isn't this just crazy? It's just... All those memories, I think back to, like, the last acquire, the fire we went to. And I know that God was telling me this would be the last one with all the teens. And it was. That year, it was the last one. And it was the year, the last year that you went with us, because the next year, it wasn't the same. Being here, in this building, I needed to ask Starla, who was I? Who was this devoted and anxious kid who called this building home? Um, do you remember when you first met me and my mom? I do. I met you guys at church for the first time, and I remember you, very young, standing with your mom, getting ready to go into church. Very polite, very pleasant, at a very young age. So what did you think of me? Very intelligent, very calm, very, um... Obedient. (laughs) Obedient? Yes. (laughs) Yes. What do you mean by that? You were always listening. You weren't ever getting out of line. You always did what was asked of you. Really passionate about church and anything to do with church. And um, you were very funny in youth group. Um, Very funny, good sense of humor, but always studying. Very passionate about learning the Word of God. 
Would you? Do you think I was kind of like a model for other people? Yes, other you definitely were a role model. No, absolutely though. You were a role model for a lot of our children. I I heard several children who wanted to be like you and um, study in, and you always helped out. Even if it was taking out the trash or doing dishes, you helped clean the church. You helped arrive early to help set up and to stay late to break down. Uh, you were a role model for even us adults. And I think um, those were good times. Even even for me, I feel like there wasn't a whole lot of valley, a whole lot of valleys. We were on the mountain top mm. having fun, playing. And um, then I think life just kind of... There's been a lot of ups and downs, a lot of valleys that we've been in. And I actually go back to those moments of the fun. And I actually think, back in youth group, do those kids remember how much fun we had when they're struggling through life right now? Because sometimes I will go back to that place of how much fun we had um, in youth group or just, you know, doing fun things at church to know that there are good times, there are bad times, but that we're still rooted in that belief that God is good. I was so excited <laughs> to see you that it gave me, I felt like a, a, a sense of belonging again. Because, mm -hmm. you know, everybody grew up and left. <laughs> yeah. And it brought me back to those happy times. But now I can see you as a very mature young adult who has grown from all those experiences. Mm -hmm. It's made you grow into this fine person who has the drive and the tenacity. Hmm. I think that that really started when you were younger. That defines who you are today, that you have that that driven power to keep going, even though it's hard. Um, I think that defines who you are as, as a person. You have that, that driving force in you. Hmm. And I do think it... God doesn't matter whether you're 12 or 25 or almost 50. <laughs> that driving force behind what we do, I think, comes from the Lord. Were you very religious when you were growing up? No. We didn't go to church when I was young. Maybe once every 10 years. So church was not a part of my life, unfortunately. And what brought you to it? Um, if you want to talk about it. <laughs> Uh, a lot of uh, heartache and pain um, is what brought me to the church and to the Lord. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'm like, it just feels a little, I don't know. I felt like I interpreted it differently than my mom did, if that makes any sense. That does make sense. As a child, it's it's different, I think, than when you become an adult. And even now, as I'm older, it was different back then. Um I'm more rooted and more grounded in believing and, and studying. And um, I was by no means a little child, but I feel like um, it means a little bit more now to me than it did back then. Even though I was all in and I was passionate, it, it I have more, um, more of a need to be grounded and rooted especially when things happen in your life that throw you off course. <laughs> yeah. But I'm a work in progress. Well, I mean, that's like, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of thinking here, like, maybe, maybe just... I don't know if I was in a cult. There were many things I wasn't allowed to watch or play or even see, but we had a TV, we watched movies, I listened to secular music, albeit sometimes secretly, but I also felt caged in. I berated myself because I couldn't be perfect in the eyes of God. I never spoke in tongues. And no matter how hard I tried, I didn't get that approval. A strongly worded letter to Satan didn't change anything. What was I supposed to do with all that emotion, with all this understanding? I've never spoken with my mother about formally deconverting from Pentecostalism. I'm not sure I've even formally deconverted. And I think it was because I was still holding my parents responsible for some of the trauma I experienced, like many ex-Pentecostals do. So I had to confront the last tie I have with the church. I had to ask her, did she know what I was going through? 
And was she going through it too? Do you think it's easier to be religious when you're older? Because then you kind of have this understanding of things that you did wrong and you've kind of gone through the gauntlet of experiences and you can kind of feel better about turning to something to find comfort. Yes. Yeah, I guess that'd be one way to put it. You get out there in the world and now you're an adult and you get out there and things don't always go as planned and life takes its different twists and turns and somewhere along the line, you know, I guess you just get to thinking, you know, is this, is that all there is? So in that regard, do you think it would be hard to be really religious as a kid? Because you haven't had those experiences yet. Yeah, I can see where it would be, yeah. I mean, I, I just wonder if, I mean, it's like as a kid, I mean, if you're introduced to all these ideas and these kind of, um, you know, you're supposed to always be acting rightly. Like you're not really given room to grow up in a lot of ways. Like you're kind of you have a lot of expectations set out before you. And then uh, if you don't meet those expectations, you feel guilty because now you have like the immensity of the universe on your shoulders in some ways. Well, I mean, I don't think it's it's so much a matter of right versus wrong. I mean, everyone should, you know, strive to live a, live a good moral life and a good life according to what am I trying to say? I mean, I mean, everybody, you know, you, you grow up with a sense of right and wrong. I mean, but it doesn't, I don't think it demands perfection. I mean, you know, even after you learn all that stuff, I mean, is everybody perfect? No, we all still make mistakes. I don't think, you know, growing up, it's so much that, you know, you have to be perfect. and, And then if you're not, that you have to carry guilt. It's just, you know, it's learning and... But I, guess I don't know. Like you tell me. You don't really know. Did you feel like you had to be perfect? In a lot of ways, yeah. Really? And you think that was put on you because of the church? I felt like any time I was screwing up or not doing something that felt exactly like that's what God would want, that... uh it was like a burden. It was like extra weight on the shoulders. That's interesting. Okay. I mean, everybody makes mistakes. We all... But not everyone's told that their mistakes will be the difference between them spending eternity in heaven or hell. Did I ever once say, do this or don't do that, because if you don't, you'll go to hell? No. I don't think I ever said that. I never said that. it's not about what you said. It's about what the Bible said. The Bible doesn't say, like, oh, if you break a commandment, oh, that's it, you're doomed to go to hell. No, but it asks you to feel guilty about it and to repent about it. It asks you to be guilty. And as a kid, I mean, how much guilt do you want to take? I don't think that the Bible says you need to, like, walk around feeling guilty about it. It wants you to, A, understand the difference, and then, B, understand that, yes, it was wrong to tell a lie, and so you need to work you know, to on yourself to do better and given that same situation next time to you know, hopefully to not do it, you know, to to repent of that. But it doesn't uh But can you repent if you never feel guilty? I don't know. I mean I just always try to encourage you to do your best. I I mean, I I wasn't consciously trying to make you feel like you had to be perfect. I just was 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 rooting for you and, and saw it as you know encouragement. And I don't think I was very strict on you. I didn't really. I mean, there were some things that I you know put my foot down on, but I don't know. When you're 14 and you feel like. One small sin, you know, can spell your eternity. It's just a lot of pressure. 
But I mean, every kid feels those things. It's what you do with those feelings, though. I mean, do you do you, do you act out those feelings, or do you just yeah? I mean, every kid okay wants to cuss, or you know, whatever. So do you go around cussing, or do you just recognize that hey, okay, that's pretty much normal teenage stuff, wanting to be cool and whatever, and and you just you don't do it, or so you're saying you would have guilt about that maybe you secretly wanted to, but then you felt that you couldn't. I felt guilt that I wanted to in the first place. Well, that's normal. I mean, it's normal to want to experience and taste those things. But they don't really tell you that. They just kind of say, don't do these things. I mean, the Bible says, even if you think about a woman in a in a salacious way that you've committed a sin. So at that point, it's, it's basically saying it's a sin to be thinking about something like that. You know, it's a sin to think about doing a sin. And so then you start to feel bad about even thinking about that, about thinking about cussing, about thinking about anything that you consider a sin. You just, you, it's like, it doesn't even matter if you act it out at that point. It's like you shouldn't even be thinking it. And then you just tell yourself not to and you repeat your scriptures and you convince yourself that you cannot think it. And then when you don't, it feels like you're letting yourself down. And not just yourself, but you're letting God down. I think it's more, I mean, you can't stop yourself from feeling that. But it's what you, how you process it or how you deal with it or what you do with it afterwards. I don't know if, I don't know if I was being told that this is normal. Like, you shouldn't feel bad about that. You know, I was mostly just being told I was being studious. I was being the exception. I was being the the example. And I was trying to be as good as I could be. And being as good as I could be told me that I should feel bad about thinking those things. And I should try never to think those things. And that when I failed at that, I should feel disappointed about it. And I guess you can only repent so many times before it starts to feel like it's not doing anything. I'm sorry. I, I didn't realize that that... I didn't realize the importance of that. No, don't be sorry. But it was... I mean, it was a little bit just like you didn't understand. And I'm not trying, there, to, fault, there, I'm not trying to fault you for that. Because I'm just like... For me, you know, going to church three to four times a week, having that be like the only community and then having to feel like I was very proud to be the one who never did wrong, who never failed, was also just like, you know, being an intense scholar of the Bible and looking into it and and writing the scriptures and putting them on my walls and repeating them like mantras. And it was just like, I felt good because of that. But it also made me feel very happy, unhappy with myself. The, the pressure to do that was hard to keep up? Yes. I mean, no one's perfect. And so if you're trying to be perfect and you continuously fail to be perfect, it starts to feel like that says something about you. So is that when you started pulling away from the church? Yeah. What what changed? The feeling that I was missing out on a lot by trying to be perfect and that the only way to be perfect was to enclose myself in a small sphere to never engage in any temptation, to be cut off so I didn't, you know, I wouldn't even have to think things, you know. But then at the same time, you feel like you're missing out on the world. And that maybe you should be allowed to screw up and fail and not feel like your soul is on the line for it. I guess one truth after all of this is that we're all at the mercy of our context. I don't blame my mother for wanting to instill a sense of morals as I grew up, to see me laughing and playing and making friends in the church and see that as success, 
a moral compass. Many times, our parents are just doing what they were raised to do. You go to church on Sunday, you pray over a meal. It's in the DNA of our American culture, whether we like it or not. But is all religion really the same? Is a parent going to church having the same experience as their children? Can you really save the world when you're terrified of it? And when does a community become a cult? Many of those I've spoken to still keep pieces of Pentecostalism with them. It's unconscious. No matter how much we push away, the fact we were children in such an intense community means it's as much a part of us as it isn't. This isn't just a typical cult story. We didn't choose our religion like our parents. It's not just a passing fad. It's 200 million strong. But many of us, we still chose to love it with all we had until it refused to love us back. And for me, even after leaving, I still haven't found a replacement for the pure belief I found in church. That's really at the center of this journey. But that's also the joy of leaving. Because now I'm the one who gets to search for that truth. I get to tell the story. I'm no longer waiting on God to be spoken through.